All right, welcome back everybody to the Surf and Sales podcast. Once again, we are here with the founder and CEO of Falcon, Mona Akmal. Welcome to the show, Mona. How's Seattle right now? Seattle is stupidly hot. I wish it was raining. I know. But what does stupidly hot mean in Seattle though? Because it's we're recording this on October 3rd. It's going to be 78 degrees. Listen, uh, if Seattle was always 78 degrees on October 3rd, even I would move to Seattle. Yes. <laughs> first person I've ever lamented, that first person I ever talked to in Seattle that's lamenting the fact that it's not cold and rainy. Look, yeah. I grew up in Lahore. Uh, you know, it was 120 degrees every fucking day. Oh, so you, she's, every year. So I like the rain. She's had enough of the heat. Yep. Yeah, she just, she just became my favorite guest because she said every fucking day before Scott or I dropped the F bomb. Yeah, she's the first guest to curse before we did. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. We're going to get along famously. Tell everybody, Mona, uh, real quick, what Falcon is, what you all, what you all do, and maybe why you started the company. Yeah, so Falcon is a go-to-market intelligence platform. And what we believe in is that excellence can be learned. You are not born an excellent salesperson. You are not born an excellent marketer. Uh, and so, you know, just like in baseball with sabermetrics, if you can figure out what the leading indicators of success are, you can replicate them. And that's what we're trying to do with data. And why I started the company specifically is because I think that uh, people hoard data, like, like it's insane how much data people hoard, but they don't actually use it. So the ROI on data is so low that it's honestly the biggest scam of this century after crypto. And we wanted to right size that a little bit. Oh, there is like three or four absolute truth bombs in there. I can I see mean, the I joy like, oh in God. Richard right now. Like, go ahead, Richard. If I weren't married, Mona, you and I would have to go on a date. I don't even know if you're married, but you know, like at least at least be like my business wife or something like that. So. Oh my God. Um, go back. It is the biggest that. scam after crypto? Was that your favorite part? Yes. Yes. Why so, do you say that though, Mona? Like, like get to this, like what's the story behind that? Because I agree with you. Yeah. So, I mean, just a little bit of context, right? Uh, I have only worked at tech companies, big tech companies, and as you know, software has infinite margin. And they are some of the most inefficiently run companies. And uh, my one year stint at Zulily, which was an e-commerce company, was game-changing for me because you know, we sold tutus to uh, little kids for five bucks. Our margin was not infinite. Our margin was 50 cents. So if we weren't efficient, if we weren't using our data to automate our workflows, we, there wouldn't be a business. And so to me, the contrast of seeing how wasteful software companies are in their spend because they have infinite, infinite resources and venture capital obviously does not help there. Uh, yet you see real businesses like e-commerce, retail, supply chain running so operationally rigorously. And the key difference being they actually use their data. That became the inspiration to say, no, software businesses too can be efficient. And honestly, I know a lot of people are upset about the market correction that's happening. I'm very happy because for the first time, people are giving a fuck about how they're spending their money to make money. Um, and yeah, my friends call me a capitalist, which I am, but I'm an efficient capitalist. So this runs pretty core to 
my when did that become a bad word oh my god so, i know it's so sad it is it is so uh i've like my mind is sort of going in so many different directions um what do you like about the correction in the market though aside from i think the obvious is there something even deeper beneath that for you and how do you and, and equally how do you take something like that and work that into your not your business model but your business psyche because this we're being bombarded by this message all the time yep yep yeah i mean you know the level one insight there which is on every b2b uh-huh. company's website right now is do more with less that's the obvious insight that we've all gotten from the market correction i think the the more interesting things that i see are founders really understanding what a scam venture capital is and how you know this is like the hunger games uh, we the founders are the the tributes and you know we get dressed up in outfits that turn into fire and get paraded around and then you know we get sent into the arena to kill each other uh, and what the impact of that is on not just uh, individuals but also companies that really don't have innate value you're seeing how Uh, companies that have IPO'd in the last, uh, you know, three or four years, and how they're shitting the bed, right? That is not the durable company that uh, that this economy was built on. This is all just a big scam. And so I think founders are realizing how expensive venture capital is, how expensive growth at all costs is. I think humans are realizing how fragile their employment is because you know they get. brought into a job thinking they're going to IPO and buy their house by the lake and then 3 months later they don't have a job anymore right um so i think that's also creating a sense of anti fragility which i'm very excited about i love the fact that most people i speak to now don't have one job they have three or four jobs because they're becoming anti fragile to this environment that we've all relied on and thought it was a safe place to be um So yeah, so those are some of the the themes that I'm excited about with the market direction. I have, a, I have one more question. I'll let Scott ask something. Um, you said that founders are seeing how much how expensive you know um, uh, venture capital is. Do you think they're finally seeing how expensive a sales motion is, and yes. that the thought that it's turnkey immediate that just because they've done founder led sales they can just hire someone to do the same you think they're finally getting that too and i don't mean in the sense of like oh my god i'm never going to hire a sales team but just kind of like this reality that it's not going to happen in 60 days no matter what their vcs tell them 100% and i mean scott will attest to that i'm getting his help right now to uh you know work myself out of the shit hole i'm in uh which is founder led sales all the way and trying to figure out how to scale myself out and you know this is also another interesting thing with founders we are always selling we're selling to prospective employees we're selling to investors we're selling to customers the sad story though is the way you sell to each constituent is very 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 different and uh you know selling to the investors will always remain a founder responsibility but uh one of the reasons why i think a lot of post ipo companies and founders are struggling is because when they try to sell to um public market investors like they used to sell to venture capitalists it just doesn't fly 
because it's not about storytelling anymore. It's about hard, cold facts and numbers, right? Uh, similarly, I think a lot of founders in my community are realizing that they have brute forced their way to a million, two million in ARR, and it's not going to get them to a hundred million. And they pretty much have to redo how they think about sales, customer acquisition, and get very operationally rigorous, uh, which of course is very exciting for someone like me. I love what you just said. Brute force to a million or two million will not get to a hundred million. Yeah. So that's beautiful. All right, Scott, your shot. As as old as time. I, I mean, I have seen this so many times over. I can't even tell you, you know, you get to one or 2 million and all of a sudden you plateau or hit against this imaginary brick wall. And it's like, oh, now what do I do? So what are, what are some of the things that worked for you as a founder trying to bring in the first customers? Like, let's say that I'm a startup founder. How do I get my first customers? You just went through this. What worked for you? Let's talk about a little, a little bit of the success story. What worked? Yeah. yeah, and I'm glad you're asking this question because my mind is so hardwired to think about the failures that talking about success is awkward, feels like riding your bicycle backwards. Uh, so for us, the first customers, honestly, I was selling myself. Uh, we had no product. Uh, we had seven slides on a slide deck. My slides tend to be clear, but not beautiful. Uh, I'm not a designer. Uh, but what helped was I understood my customer's business as well, if not better than they understood their business. I spent a lot of time researching what the economic drivers of their businesses were. I read all public documents that they shared, right? And so those first customer acquisition conversations were one, to prove to them that I understand their business and I deeply care and I'm going to take a consultative approach because I've been in the industry for 20 years and I've solved many of the problems that they're facing. Um, the second factor that really helped get the first few customers was um, uh, essentially making them thought partners and uh, not focusing too much on the revenue aspect, but focusing on let's solve the problem that is imminent. And if we are able to deliver value, then we've earned the right to ask you for a paycheck. So it was basically leading with service as opposed to, you know, creating a hype cycle for investors. Uh, and then the third and last to make them successful was key because for instance, our first customer was Remitly, our second customer was Zendesk. Those two then ended up being the reason why the next four customers trusted us because these are good brands and we had clearly shown that we could do right by those businesses. So what is, what is the, the value exchange? You, you said finding good thought partners in early, early customers. What does that value exchange look like? You're, you're helping them solve XYZ problem what are they providing to you specifically? Yeah. So, you know, because in that scenario, we had no product. The first version of the product was my brain looking at their data, making meaning and sharing insights. So the most valuable thing they could provide for us is to tell us which aspects of this value that was generated in a human way 
was durably valuable for them, would be high frequency value, and would actually change the way they make decisions every day, right? So for instance, with Remitly, the use case that we went down was running a highly rigorous weekly business review process like Amazon has for the last 20 years. How do you run that process? How do you run your business with KPIs that are not just, oh, we're going to make 20 million this year. That's not a KPI. That's just like, you know, I'm going to lose 30 pounds this year, January 1st. That's a hope, and a hope and a prayer. It's oh a my hope God, that's prayer. me. If you pack that code, let me know. Scott knows I struggle with losing 30 pounds in a year regularly. It's hard. Last year, you know, uh, I was looking at my average last year. I, uh, I averaged 200 steps a day of walking last year. You have to work really hard to be that still every day of the year. It is very hard. Um, but like getting remitly to a point where we had an operationally rigorous way to run their business through KPIs that were leading indicators of success every week, not once a month, not once a quarter, every week, right? And make course corrections. When they told us how valuable and game-changing for them that, that way of running the business was, that was the value we got out of it. So now we could build a product around that concept. Hmm. How, do, how do you nail this first big customer? I mean, how do you get somebody like a Zendesk, their size, you said that they buy into you and, and the idea of what you're, what you're building. What made you decide to go after these big logos right away rather than something, you know, smaller, faster, easier, whatever you want to call it. What, what was, can you talk a little bit about the approach and the strategy there? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, first of all, I don't know if it was the right strategy. I'll tell you though, why it was the strategy I took. Uh, I think sophisticated customers help you build sophisticated products. And I was interested in building a sophisticated product. Uh, so I wanted to work with customers that were smarter than I was. Uh, and not being boastful, that's a high bar. So, you know, had to really make sure that these were people that genuinely cared about their business. They understood data. So, you know, in many ways, it wasn't a challenger sale. It was a very transactional sale. We all how do you even get it? How do you even get in front of them? Did you have relationships? Is that the key? You had so, a VC or something like that? Or you, you said earlier, you've been doing this 20 years. So maybe yeah. they're just in the network. So uh, two factors came into play there. One, I was very careful about selecting a space where I already had a strong network. So for instance, I love consumer ideas. I don't know anyone in consumer companies because I've never worked in consumer companies. I've only worked in SaaS companies. So what the like, what is my business building Instagram? I have no leverage there, right? And if you're gonna play to win, you have to play to your strengths. And my strengths are, I know a lot of people in Seattle in the SaaS world. So uh, part one, I knew a lot of people. Part two, I am shameless about asking for help and I will harass people uh, as long as I need to, to get me the intro that I want. So with Remitly, I got introduced to their CEO um, because uh, we had a common investor. With Zendesk, I got introduced to the VP of marketing through Greylock, which was also an investor. But you know, investor intros just open the door and it's a 30 minute call. And then it's all up to you whether you're gonna pull it off or not. That's great. And for those keeping score, um, Mona has four F-bombs. Scott and Richard each have zero. 
So uh, sorry. No, 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 no. It's just not. Um, on a, on. So I'm sitting here and I'm listening, and you're just dropping knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb, right? And you've been doing this for 20 years, and I don't know if people know this, but um, you're a client of Scott's. What level of humility does it take to reach out to someone when you're a founder with that much experience? Like, have you always, maybe the better question is, have you always been someone who's willing to say, I just don't know it all yet, um, or I just need someone to bounce stuff off of? Like, because I really, I really, the reason I'm asking this question too is that so often I've run into founders who are so smart and brilliant and, and similar, but they're, either unwilling or not capable of humbling themselves enough to ask for advice. Mm -hmm. So what's, have you always been that way? And then what would be a piece of advice to give those kinds of people or founders that you'd say, Hey, here's how you might want to look at it. Yeah. A couple of things there. One, it's my mom. Uh, you know, uh, we were high achievers in school and nothing was ever good enough. So I used to joke with my mom that, I could be the president of the world and you'd still find a reason to tell me I didn't do something right. So that really helps. And I talk to my mom every day and she takes me down a couple of notches, which is very important. And I mean this in the best way possible. Like I love my mother. She's the most important person in the world to me. Uh, so I think part of it is conditioning and upbringing. The other part is my simple answer is fuck humility. This isn't about humility. This is about enlightened self-interest. What's the end game? I want to win. If Scott's going to help me win, I will kiss Scott's feet if I have to. That's it. Right. So it's not about like at the end of the day, if uh, if I want to sit in my room thinking I'm the best person possible, but my business doesn't go anywhere, my company doesn't thrive, uh, the people that work with me are not proud of what they've accomplished, then what was the point? Like, it's just about focusing on the end game. For me, the end game is I want to succeed. I want to win. And uh, I, I will say this openly. I'm the worst salesperson on the planet. Uh, you know, and I need to get better. My goal this year is I'm going to become the best salesperson there. And I will learn from the best, like Scott and other people. Uh, so, you know, it's, I guess, uh, I do, this also maybe comes to why people start companies, right? I started a company when I was 40. Um, I could be sitting in Google right now making 4 million bucks a year and resting, investing and taking seven weeks of vacation and, you know, having an Instagram post that makes everybody jealous. That's um, just not my DNA. I, I'm not motivated by that. I want to learn. I want to grow. I get bored very easily. So company building was really about, uh, for me, uh, becoming a better person. And you can't become a better person if you're not listening or learning or growing or being uncomfortable sounds very hallmarky as I'm saying it but it it's very so, true for me so all right so I'm gonna I'm gonna flip this a little bit because hmm. I want people to understand this sort of advisor right and it's kind of one of those things that you've said look you know this is where it comes from this is how I do it and I love this enlightened self-interest is greater than humility like that is like that needs to go on a t-shirt <laughs> a bumper sticker <laughs> right um and that's that word enlightened, right? Because um, everybody walks around with self-interest all the time. Mm -hmm. 
are you willing to share something that Scott's helped you with? And I'm not trying to position Scott for people to come find him, but I don't mind if they do. Um, but I want to make I want to make sure that people understand what's this value of a relationship, right? When you are this founder, what are the kinds of things? And, and Scott certainly jump in and say, "Here's something we noticed too. Like it it can go either way." But I'm, I'm just curious how that how that looks for you. So many examples, and Scott, you do have to chime in because I'd like your thoughts on this as well. On <laughs> if, if you you're twisting my arm, <laughs> you have to go first. You have to go first. All right, I'll go first. So, okay, this was actually our call last week. I'll give you two examples. One, uh, Scott first asked me, he was like, so what's your first call script? I said, I don't have a script. And he was like, what the fuck, write a script down. I said, I don't even know if it's the right script. Like I'm not the definition of good here. And he was like, if you don't write it down, it's not gonna get better. So I wrote it down, it was trash. And he commented on it and said, stop being lazy. Those are his words stop being lazy and write it down. And then I got pissed off and I wrote back in Slack and I said, I am not being lazy. Like I literally don't know what you want from me. Can you please show me instead of pontificating on what it should be? And then he wrote it down and I was like, oh, that's what he meant. Um, so my point, the, the reason for this example being illustrative is I am a pretty opinionated person. I do need to be pushed back hard. I don't always learn the, you know, in, in the way Scott's trying to teach me, but the fact that he asks me something, pushes me to do it, then corrects me, shows me through an example what good looks like, starts to get repeatable processes being developed in my head. So I'm sure the fifth script I'm going to write is going to be a lot better than that first piece of trash I wrote, which I read this week. And I was like, what the fuck? This is so embarrassing. Um, so that's, that's an example of how Scott's helping me uh, improve. Um, Scott? I have a question for you, Scott, around it. Um, and then answer as well. But so you give advice to someone. And I, and I want the founders and other leaders to hear what this means. Write down the script. What does that mean, Scott? Like when you and I know that I know you well enough to go. Well, it's kind of like whatever they want it to be. But um, is it like phone rings? Richard says hello. Mona says hello. Like yeah, what, is that yeah? I mean, I <clears throat> I look at it like a like a movie script would go, and I and I want somebody to play out this ideal kind of conversation that I know is probably never going to happen exactly this way. But this is the starting place. So if, if Mona called me, what does a perfect conversation sound like in her head? How has she explained this to people before? How does she explain what it is that we do? What is the problem that her business solves? And so I want that knowledge to not be locked inside of a founder's head. And the best place that I know to put it down is to just write it down on paper, put it in a Word doc. It doesn't have to be good. But as somebody who's just entering the business and trying to provide value and help out, I don't have fucking six months to learn Falcon's business so I can write the thing from scratch. So I'm not going to do it for, for her until I figure out like where her, the line is where she starts to get irritated a little bit. Right. So I pushed and I pushed and pushed and then she snapped at me, which is totally fine with me. 
And I'm like, okay, I've hit the threshold. She's overwhelmed. Like now I'm going to show her exactly what I mean. And then I got in the weeds and like, I don't want to say I did the whole thing, but I did this one part, like all the way through Mm -hmm. and then it clicked for her. And so now hopefully the takeaway is for her. Okay. When we add this other feature, how would I talk about it? I got to write it down like this. If we're going to rework the whole demo, I got to do it this way. How do I engage people to get into a conversation? How do I start these conversations off? When somebody tells me we have, they have this objection, what do I do? And I just am a big proponent of documenting all of these things because one of the challenges with many founders and, and Mona had this challenge, they're in love with their baby. They want to explain everything that there is, every detail matters and all this kind of stuff. And they're very, very smart, way smarter than me. Well, that is a hindrance sometimes when you go to sell. So I'm like, simplify, 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 cut down, talk to me like I'm an idiot, you know, and and get the message to be very crisp and very clear. And that's often not a one slice surgical process. It's a process of trimming little by little by little. The message of Falcon and the message of Mona will be very different one year from today and five years from today. It will evolve and it will be amazing how crystallized it is. And that's what we're kind of driving towards and I'm trying to facilitate. But I'm not the person that's just like, oh, cool, I'm working with Mona. I'm just going to do everything for you now. I don't teach that way. Right? Yeah. So I want to ask the same question of each of you, but I want Mona to answer first. Mona, next time Scott suggests you go write the script on the first draft, because we know it's never going to be 100%, so we can get that out. On a scale of zero to 100%, on the first draft, how good do you think it'll be the first time you write it down? I always tend to round down numbers. Again, this is my mother talking. Hi, mom, Uh, (laughs) which is... I would say if I was uh, five on a hundred uh, pre-spot, I think I'll right now be more like a 30 on hundred. Uh, my hope and goal is in the next month after I've written four or five versions of it, I want to get to 70 or 80. Uh, and then if you ask me this question next year, I'll say, who was that idiot that thought that was 80? That was 20. This is 80. You yeah. know? So. Scott, how do you... How do you, those numbers feel accurate based on the founders you work with, right? Like the first time they write the script, is it 50% good? Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not a five. Mona's being extremely harsh on herself. Shout out to Mona's mom for the self-critique. Um, but yeah, I'm, I usually tell people, listen, just give me like a D plus C minus caliber piece of work. So that's like 60 to 70 right? That resonates. That's enough of a, of a skeleton to build upon, you know? And when you've done this enough times, it becomes easy to take that skeleton and turn it into something that's a, you know, 90 to a hundred. Yeah. And a few years from now, Mona tries to write some new script or has a new product line or, you know, 10 years, 15 years from now, she has a new company and starts this whole process again. She's like, okay, now I'm not going to start at a 50. I'm going to produce like an 85, 90 straight away. 
and then we refine it. So now I'm going to ask last question, Scott, back to you. I feel like we're in therapy, Mona. Richard's like our therapist here. <laughs> well, I'm, try- I'm trying to get people who listen like this and to, to Mona's point of like this enlightened piece of like, oh, this is what I need to do. It's just like, you know, when we had to write term papers, you got to write three drafts that we all hated and all that stupid shit. Well, that's why people don't do this work, by the way. And so- Because so- it's, hold on, hold on. This is a very important point you just made, Richard. That's why people don't do this work because it's yeah. boring. It's a pain in the ass. Yes. It's a self-loathing, uh, like critical process where whatever you produce, you think is fucking horrible. Yeah. Right. So people try to get away with not doing it for as long as humanly possible. Yep. Yep. So Mona, let me ask you this question and now I'll turn it over to Scott. Now that you're going through this exercise about your messaging and your script, how does that change your, in general, not, not like the go-to-market, but in general, how does that change your internal dialogue at the company? Oh my God. Because now you're, yeah. Okay, go. You already know what I'm asking. It's game-changing. It's just game-changing. Um, so, I mean, you know, just as a frame of reference, I'm a product person. I started oh. as an engineer, right? So, um, left to my own devices, my brain works very, very differently. And uh, now the the... Last week, we reoriented the entire company instead of features and capabilities. Every one pager is going to start as a script to a prospect. So it's not just me writing the script. Uh, What's that sound like? Hmm? What do you think that's going to sound like? Uh, so I actually just read the first one of them and it was not very good. And, and now we're going to work on it. So I, it's not just me who's learning this. It's a new capability we're working on. The product manager is writing the script of how we are going to talk about it. What is it? Why is it important? And we won't discuss the solution at all. That's been actually one of the learnings from Scott is it's not about your solution. Like stop navel gazing. So it's gonna be about the context, the customer, the problems, the questions, the impact of the solution. And then solution is like an afterthought. We're gonna do product development that way. We're gonna do marketing that way. We're gonna bring on advisors who support us in that way. We're actually changing our customer success process to also follow the same track because as a young company, customer success, half of customer success is actually sales. It's not customer success. So um, short answer to your question, it is changing how we think about every single discipline, not just sales. That's, that's, that's why I wanted to do that. All right, Scott, I'll go on mute now. Well, it's, a, it's the messaging and how you tell your, your story. Your story is not what you do and how you do it and why you're so cool. Nobody cares about that. Nobody wants to hear about that. Your story is what is the challenge that's going on out there and why is that challenge important to fix and why should we fix it right now? It's all about them. Yes. And that's the story that <clears throat> that resonates when you tell a story and you make it about me as the reader. You make me feel like I'm experiencing it or listening to it. Now I'm much more compelled to be interested and that's the that's a dynamic shift that you know is pretty cool to hear about that it's not just in sales that it's happening it's all all across the the business and different parts of the business we gave you a chance to talk about some of the things that you got right 
Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit on some of the things that you maybe got wrong or, or you're, you're tweaking. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's been the most surprising thing so far in trying to go to market, good or bad? Something that you thought was going to work and didn't, or something that you didn't think was going to work, but did. Yeah. So a few surprising things. Uh, One, I didn't realize how important. So I always thought people would have objections to pricing, but actually objections to time that it takes to enable a company on a vendor. If it's actually more important than the price, people feel like, time is more scarce for them than money is. So being able to handle the objection of, no, this is not gonna take you three months to implement and another three months to enable your team to get value out of, that was one big surprise. Uh, Second big surprise was the go-to-market world in general. People have bought so many fucking tools that they have gotten no value out of that uh, we are up against we're essentially paying for the sins of the hundred predecessors, right? And we have to be able to get through that. So we've spent more time on time to value than anything else in our product. Um, And then I think the third thing that I didn't realize was, and this is going to sound super obvious. I'm a very transactional person. I know my problems and I can articulate to you what my problems are and it needs to be a quick conversation. Are you going to help me solve my problem? Do I trust that you can? If you are, great. If you're not, fuck off, right? Guess what? Customers don't work that way at all. <laughs> it's really annoying. Um, <laughs> so that's been a big surprise. Like, why the fuck don't you know your own problems? That's insane to me. Oh, my God. You just described me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time. Just get to the fucking point. Exactly. Last paragraph. And I kind of prefer the last sentence of the last paragraph, please. Exactly. Mm. But it doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Uh, we have to move towards, towards wrapping up. We want to thank our sponsors, Outreach, Sendoso, Scratchpad and MedRep meeting for their support, not just with the Surf and Sales podcast, but also our bonfire sessions that we do, as well as the Surf and Sales Summit coming up in just barely over a month, Richard. We'll be in Costa Rica in November. I'm super excited. Mona, when are you coming to Surf and Sales? And do we need to write your mother and get a permission slip? (laughs) Last for tonight. So ask her tonight. <laughs> we always try to we always try to uh, end every show by saying, "How can we be helpful to you? What questions do you have for us? Anything on your mind that you want to talk to us about?" Yes, I would like both of your advice. So, as a founder that has just raised a Series A, what are the gotchas that I need to be aware of? That you know, six months from now, I'll say, "I wish someone had told me to watch out for X or Y." In your experience. Go ahead, Richard. You want to go first? Sure. Um, she did cut off the one question I was going to ask, which is what's the worst advice God ever gave you? But we don't have time for that today. <laughs> I'm very glad she skipped over that one. Yeah, I skipped over it. So um, I think there's, and there's a balance in this, given the economic stuff is sitting on the money in your bank too long 
and taking too long to spend it. That doesn't mean go out and buy every fucking thing under the sun. That is not what I'm suggesting. But it is a question of understanding that. And I also think too, after series A, um, so many people will go to the VCs for advice rather than that outside advisor. And I think they just miss an opportunity because the VCs have a desirable self-interest, um, which is okay. That's what their job is. I mean, and yours too. Like if, if it works for them, it works for you and everybody's happy. Um, but I also think that they've also not always, well, they haven't recently walked the walk in a long time. And so I think that's a piece. There are some amazing VCs though who support what I'm saying. And they actually do have someone in house who can do that or the entrepreneurs and residents who are, you know, after success, they're trying to figure out where they're going to go. So I think that there are amazing VCs who can do that. But that to me is the one thing I see. I saw, I worked with a guy, he raised 7 million and it was, you know, and I'm not kidding. I had to have a meeting with him and the COO to, this is 10 years ago, to get permission to spend 50 bucks a month on HubSpot's open email reader tracker, right? Like I'd spend an hour talking to the two of them, convincing them that the three salespeople we had needed this tool and why it was so important. And that's the kind of stuff that matters. And in the go-to market side, and it's, I often see it's just like, oh yeah, we're gonna buy Jira, great. Like that's so easy for them because that's the world they live in. So it's finding that right balance to spend the money in a healthy way, getting the advice from people who are outside your bubble. Um, and don't think just because you got the funding and the VCs are there that their advice is always the right advice. It often is, but go check that some, like go get a gut check. So, on. Right on. There's two things that I was thinking of, of in terms of gotchas. The first one would be setting your goals unrealistically high. And that to me is a death sentence and afflicts so many different companies. Just because you raise all this money doesn't mean you're suddenly going to do $5 million in ARR this year. It doesn't really work like that. And you set these goals too high and everybody gets demoralized. I think you used the sports analogy earlier. You talked about sabermetrics and baseball and whatnot. I'll use a different sports metaphor. There's a reason in college football, some of the biggest schools out there play against some of the smallest schools at the very beginning of the year. And that reason is practice and to get a little bit of a win under their belt to get a little bit of momentum. And then they build up to harder opponents. I'm a big, big believer in setting attainable incremental goals. So the sellers and the engineers who are building the product and everybody on the team starts to feel us going in the right direction. If you give me this massive goal straight away and I get to 30% of it, everybody around us is going to feel like, oh my God, we're failing. We're losers already. So the gotcha is don't put the goal in this unreasonable, crazy high place. Don't overextend your promises to the VC and then make this ties into my second point. And then make whoever you hire as your sales leader inherit this fucking number that is like mathematically impossible. And the second gotcha is there's a big difference between hiring the right people and hiring the wrong people to lead this 
sales effort, not just in like a head of sales role, but the people that that person brings along with them, your first couple sellers in, you have to do a really good job of finding these like anchor tenants, if you will, people, you know, are going to be consistent, you know, we're going to be communicative, giving you feedback on the direction of the pitch, the direction of the product, what's resonating, what's not. And somebody who's setting a strategy in place, not just somebody who's a really good salesperson and can go close a couple of deals, somebody who can build this thing in a scalable way and is optimizing for getting things done. That's the so Scott, idea. what do you define that a little bit more? I know we're getting to the end, but uh, Imona, have you found your first sales hiring? Uh, we're working your head of sales. I should say your leader of sales. Uh, we're working through it. Okay. Yes. What are the what are the pieces of because I know this? What are the good pieces of advice Scott's giving you as you look for this person? Again, just trying to give other people this mindset of what it's like, and then we'll get out of here. You're asking me, Richard? No, I'm asking Mona. What is the advice oh. Scott's giving you? Yes. that maybe you didn't realize you go, oh, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. So Scott and I have actually discussed this at great length. And I think that a few things that stood out to me, one, this person has to be, uh, ha has to have done early stage before because there is a lot to be done when there is no infrastructure in place. Second, this person has to have this sort of mindset of writing things down, building a playbook, really being very, very operationally rigorous and uh, to actually focus on having uh, this person in place before we bring in any sales reps because there's a lot of build work that needs to happen before we can start to think about scaling out. And then the last thing that I think Scott keeps reminding me of is that you know half the questions he asks me my answer is i do that and the 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 counterpoint to that is always no like you have to find <laughs> you have to find someone else like that's not you uh so there's a bit of the art of like learning to get yourself out of the way yeah. and delegating certain things and recognizing that just because you can do something right now doesn't mean you should be Yes. And you've got to find a way to step back so the business can continue to, to grow the, in the right direction. And if you've got the right person in place, I think people get more comfortable with taking that, that step back. Right. So, yep. well, thanks so much uh, for spending some time with us today, Mona. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking with you. Richard before the show was like, Who's, who's Mona? How do you know Mona? Whatever I said, she's going to be great. You're going to love her. She's a riot to talk to and uh, you delivered. So thanks for making me look smart and awesome. thanks for being on the uh, Surf Sales podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. I was nervous before the call. You guys are awesome. You're good people. This was That's really the way we like to roll. We like to make people nervous. Oh, good. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then pleasantly surprise them during the actual, the actual show. Exactly. Exactly. Moni, it's been right. great getting to know you. I'm excited to keep conversations going offline. Awesome. Um, and I mean, you know this, you can always pay me now if you ever need advice and say, is Scott really an idiot or does he know what he's yeah. doing? Sounds good. I will yeah. text you later today. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>